Word. If you have a copy of God's Word, turn to Ezra, chapter 7. For those of you that are laughing, you know that last week I tried to get us to go to Ephesians, and that didn't work too well. So I'm thankful that you're here. Speaking of gratitude and thanks, I want to say a word of thanks to the hundreds of you, hundreds of you who have agreed to pray. Last week we started our 40 Days of Prayer initiative, and we have people praying uh, in 30-minute segments around the clock, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And I want you to know I am so thankful and honored to be your pastor and to be a part of a church that takes prayer seriously. So thank you for being that kind of church. Thank you for praying. Thank you for getting on our faces before the Lord and saying, God, what we're just saying, God, we need you. We've been looking at the book of Ezra this fall, and we've made our way to chapter 7. What we looked at in the first six chapters is that God is restoring his people. God's restoring grace has brought his people back out of exile, out of Babylon, back to Jerusalem. God has sustained his people through opposition, through persecution. And now God has allowed them to rebuild the temple. Sacrificial system is continuing and God is continuing to advance his plans and purposes forward. As we've looked at this historical reality, we've also drawn significance for our lives. Because while these events are historical and real, they also reveal a lot about who God is. That we have a God who is a God of restoration and second chances. That we have a God who can redeem us and save us, not just from our sin when we first come to know him, but we have a God who can save and restore and redeem us from our poor decisions, from our own disobedience, from our own distractions. We have that kind of God. It goes back to that classic kind of theological formulation that I've been saved, but I'm being saved and I will be saved. The book of Ezra shows us how God continues to save and to work in our lives. Today in Ezra 7, though, we see a new theme develop in God's restoring grace in this world. And that new theme is the word of God. Today, we're going to see restoring grace and the word of God. Now, this restoring grace and the word will be introduced to us through a new character. will be introduced to Ezra today. But what's important is that God is going to put a priority in his restoration of his people on them hearing and understanding the word of God. What we're going to see today is that in order for the restoring work of God to continue to advance in this world, it advances along the foundation through the power of the Word of God and the Holy Spirit. Now, this is important for us in 2019 as well, because while I know we say we believe in the Word of God and we as a church confessionally hold to the inerrancy and the authority of the Bible, it's very easy to let some of the current trends around us shape how we look at the Bible. What we see in our culture today is an increasing suspicion and cynicism around any kind of authority. We see an increasing suspicion that really seeks to do away with any kind of authority, especially as it relates to moral authority. There was a time when people generally trusted politicians and news outlets There was a time when people assumed that people that were elected into official office in the life of our country were upstanding, trustworthy people. And I would say probably now the reverse is true. Most of us assume that people that are in positions of leadership or 
The news outlets that we watch are always spinning things. They're always telling us a half-truth. There's this whole category, right? Fake news. How many of you have heard the phrase fake news? Okay, most of you have heard the idea of fake news, that there's this, this whole kind of apparatus or category we've created of people who say they're telling the truth, but who we really don't trust or believe. When you couple this with the idea that people don't believe in truth, don't believe in moral absolutes, that's been going on for quite some time. When you, when you put all that together, there's just a real suspicion of authority and truth in our lives in such a way that authority's kind of gotten a bad name. Truth's kind of gotten uh, a suspicion and a cynicism that always comes with it. What we're going to see in Ezra chapter 7 and 8 is we're going to see how God's word changes us. We're going to see that that God's word is indeed necessary for our lives. We're going to see how we should respond to it. But we're also going to see as we watch Ezra 7 and 8, how we can partner with God to see his word advance in this world. First thing I want to show you from Ezra 7 and 8 is the necessity of God's word. I want you to see the necessity of God's word in Ezra 7 and 8. Look in your Bibles at Ezra 7, verse 1. It says, After these events, during the reign of King Artaxerxes of Persia, Ezra, let's get down to verse 6. We'll come back to those names in a moment. Ezra came up from Babylon. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given him. The king had granted him everything he requested because of the hand of the Lord, his God, was on him. Now, we need to understand the timeline here. This is about six years after they finished the temple. The temple's been completed. Sacrifices are happening. God is uh, being with his people. He's sustaining them through opposition. And after six years of the temple being completed, the camera moves from Jerusalem and zooms back to Babylon and Persia. So it moves from Jerusalem to modern-day Iraq, Iran, where there are still Jewish people living there. And one of the men that we're introduced to is the name is the man whose name this book is written after. He wrote Ezra. He wrote this book. It is indeed Ezra. Ezra was a man who was of Jewish descent, living in Babylon at that time, who has, we need to note, a very impressive pedigree. Very impressive genealogy. If you look through verses 1 through 5, you'll see a list of names that really culminates in verse 5. Look back with me in your Bibles at Ezra's pedigree. He says he's the son of Phinehas, Eleazar's son, the chief priest Aaron's son. Ezra was a modern day descendant at this time, all the way going back to Aaron. Now, who was Aaron? Aaron was the brother of Moses. This is the Moses who led the children of Israel out of Egypt. This Aaron was the first high priest. And the high priest's job, once a year, among other things, was to go into the temple, to go into the Holy of Holies, into God's very presence, and to offer sacrifice for the people. He stood between God and the people as he offered sacrifice. And so it's important to note that Ezra has this impressive pedigree, this impressive family history that's brought into this place. But there's more than that. Because we're not only noticing uh, Ezra's pedigree and his family history, 
we're also noticing that God has sovereignly maintained and kept one of Aaron's descendants for just such a time as this. See, Ezra is the right man at the right time for the job that God has assigned him. This list is more than just a random list of names. We're meant to see in this list God's sovereign hand working through history to bring Ezra at the right time, at the right place to help God's people. This is important for your life because you have to decide whether you believe you're where you're at right now just because of random chance and your random choices and consequences around you, or you have to decide if you believe that you're where you're at today because of God's sovereign hand. You see, one of the reasons I think that's critical for my life is because my life and my life, one of the greatest temptations I face with my sin is to compare myself to other people. I don't know if any of you ever have that affliction, but it's easy, right, to look at somebody's family, at least as they're portrayed on social media. <laughs> to look at someone's family or their marriage or their things, or in my case, another pastor down the street and say, man, I, I wish my life was like that. Man, I wish my life looked like that person's life looks. I wish my life had turned out differently. I wish, I wish my kids had turned out differently. I wish, I wish my house was bigger. I wish my, my career had advanced in a different direction. I wish all these things had happened. It's so easy to compare ourselves to other people. But can I tell you what comparison does in my life? Comparison breeds discontentment with what God has called me to right now. What's the remedy for comparison in your life? Can I tell you the remedy? The remedy to the discontentment of comparison is believing in God's sovereign plan for your life. God has you where he has you for a purpose. God has you where he has you for a reason. And it is more, it is more than just the sum total of your random choices and consequences of your decisions. God has you where he has you for a purpose. Do you believe that today, parents? Do you believe that today as you look at your career and your family and your things? Do you believe God's sovereign purpose for your life? Ezra has a purpose that God has designated him for here. And it is that he is, look back in your Bibles at verse six, was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the, the God of Israel had given. Now a scribe was a, a category that kind of emerged as God's people grew and developed where they were men who were devoted to studying the word of God. They were experts in the word. But Ezra was no mere scribe. Ezra here is described as one who was skilled in the law of Moses. To be skilled means he was quick. He not only understood the law, but he could relate it to other people. He could teach it to other people. He could grasp it quickly and convey what God was saying to other people. I've had the privilege in my life of being around some men and some women who were skilled in God's word. One of those was a guy that I had in seminary named Craig Blazing, who was a professor that I had in I had him for a night class, Tuesday night from 6 to 9 p.m. 
Sounds like a real exciting time of the evening, right? After a long day, you would think, man, can you really stay awake? Is, is this class really going to be worth going to? Am I going to try to cut out through the break? But what he did in that class kept me awake every single moment because he had this incredible recall of Scripture. He could cite a verse in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and then Revelation and had this beautiful way of pulling all those things together in a way that it made sense to me. I loved going to that class, even though it was three hours, it was hard, it was difficult, because he had such an incredible recall of the Bible and understanding it and how it all worked together. That's kind of what we have pictured here with Ezra. Ezra is a man who fully understands the word. He doesn't just understand it, though. He can relate it to people. He can convey it to people in such a way that they clearly grasp what God is saying. But he's not just grasping anything. Notice what he says in the Bible in verse 6. He was skilled in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. Now, whenever we have a reference to one of the great covenants or promises in the Bible, we need to tap the brakes. Because you'll remember that there are six, six great promises in the Old Testament that really shape the backbone and the structure of the Bible. Two of those are kind of referenced here, one directly, one indirectly. The one that's indirectly mentioned in Ezra is the promise of Abraham. You'll remember in Genesis 12, God came to Abraham and said, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you a great family. And the significance of the promise God made to Abraham was when God talked to him, how many children did Abraham have? Zero. In fact, he was well advanced in years. But despite Abraham's position, God says, I'm going to give you a great nation. It's going to come from you. I'm going to give you a great land. And I'm going to give you a great protection, Abraham. I'm going to give you these three things. And oh, by the way, Abraham, through you, through your family, Abraham, all the families on the earth are going to be blessed. This, of course, is a reference to none other than Jesus Christ. It's a reference to Jesus that would descend from Abraham. But as time went on, the way that God's people enjoyed the blessings of Abraham was through the conditions that God gave to Moses. So when the children of Israel came out of Egypt and they're there before the Lord, the Lord's giving them the Ten Commandments, the Lord says, if you obey these things, If you do these things, you will be blessed. You'll enjoy a nation, a land, and protection. And so what happens when you look at this passage and you see Ezra being skilled in the law of Moses, it's more than just him being skilled in some truths or some obscure passages. What you see in Ezra is his ability to tell the people of God what they must do to enjoy the blessings of God. So if you trace biblical history from the covenant of Abraham, the covenant of Moses forward, when the people obey the Ten Commandments, when they obey the law, they enjoy land, nation, and protection. When the people disobey the law of Moses, when they reject his authority, they lose their land, their nation, and their protection. And so Ezra is coming to say to them, there's a way forward. There's a way to enjoy the blessings and the goodness of God. But the only way that happens is if we submit to his authority. God was putting a premium 
on getting this word, getting these requirements back to his people, which is why it says, and the rest of verse six, that the king had granted Ezra everything he requested because of the hand of the Lord his God was on him. Ezra had the favor and the blessing of God, not just because he was a gifted scribe. What we're meant to see is that God had a purpose and a plan for Ezra's life to get the word of God to the people of God so they could understand how to enjoy the blessings of God. Now, here's the principle for you and for me, okay? And this is how this connects to our lives. You and I, today in 2019, similarly to Ezra 7, you and I cannot experience the blessing of God apart from the authority of God. You and I, living in 2019, cannot experience God's blessing and favor on our lives unless we submit to his authority. Now let's get something really clear right from the beginning. When I say blessing, I don't mean material things. I don't mean houses and cars and clothes. When I say blessing, I also don't mean comfort or ease. No, the blessing that God offers us is knowing him is real, deep, abiding intimacy with the Father that leads to joy, hope, peace, purpose in our lives. The blessed life that Jesus offers you is not one of comfort and ease with everything you've ever wanted materially. No, the blessed life Jesus offers you today is one of really knowing your creator in a personal, intimate way. The reason this is critical is that from the beginning, the enemy has tried to disconnect God's blessing from God's authority. So the lie that you and I have to to be careful that we don't drift into is the lie that I can enjoy all the good things God has for me, but I don't have to do what God says. Remember when the serpent came to Eve in Genesis 3? The serpent comes to Eve and says, did God really say don't eat from that tree. Eve looks at the serpent. She looks at the tree. She looks back at the serpent. And you can tell there's a quizzical look kind of emerging on her face. And the serpent says, no, you're not going to die. In fact, if you eat from that tree, you can be like God. Let me translate that a different way. You can disobey God. You can reject God's authority and still enjoy God's blessings. You can live however you want. You can do whatever you want and still enjoy all the goodness in this world that God has for you. It's the lie that you and I have continued to struggle with as people living in 2019. We see this every single direction in our culture. We see it, for example, in the abortion debate. My soul, the the level of um, dialogue and discussion around abortion has moved from being um, sad and scary to pure evil in our world today. We have people running for a nomination to be the president of our country who say that abortion is a fundamental human right. What does that, what does that mean? What does it mean that something's a human right? Well, it means that it's a, it's a benefit that you should enjoy, that you should have, that's totally decoupled from any sense of authority or accountability to God. 
How are we doing that in our culture? Why have we gotten to the place where people are talking about killing an unborn child in the womb as a right? We've moved from it being safe, legal, and rare. Remember that phrase? Oh, abortion needs to be safe, legal, and rare to now it's a right? How in the world have we gotten to this place? It's because we've decoupled God's authority from God's blessing. People want to be able to enjoy intimacy. They want to be able to enjoy how they want to live their lives without any accountability to God. Even if that accountability is hardwired into the created order. Even if that accountability is hardwired into creation and how life emerges, we are suppressing and repressing the truth that God has clearly revealed in Scripture. You saw this this past week also in Italy where they had a court case that was passed that basically legalized euthanasia, people being able to end their lives however they see fit. The individual who won the case was quoted as saying this, This individual welcomed the Constitutional's court's ruling as one that gave everyone more freedom. Freedom. Pay attention, sweet people, to how we're discussing about how life enters the world through the abortion debate and how people are talking about wanting to end their life in the euthanasia debate. Here's the constant theme. People have assumed that real freedom is getting to do whatever you want to do. But can I tell you the truth? The truth of the scriptures is that real freedom is not getting to do whatever you want to do. Real freedom is getting to do what you were made to do. That's real freedom. Real freedom is getting to do what you were made to do. What were you made to do? You were made to submit and to worship the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. That's why you were made. You were created to submit to God. Submission's got a bad rap, though. We think submission is this negative thing. But have you ever had a boss or an employer that you liked working for? I know that's kind of a foreign concept to many of us. But have you ever had somebody that you enjoyed working for? You know what I found about the people I've enjoyed working for? They're people who are competent. They know what they're doing. And they care about me. If I think somebody that I'm working for cares about me, genuinely cares about me, and is competent, they know what they're doing, there's a joy in submitting to that kind of authority in the workplace. Can I tell you the good news about what God has given you and himself? God has given you a creator, a king who cares about you. How do I know that God cares about me? You don't have to look any further than Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ died for you. He rose again. He offered his life as a sacrifice. And now he says, you can be forgiven. But you all now have a God who cares about you. You have a God who's competent, who knows, who's all-knowing, who's all-wise. How can we submit to this kind of God? Because he is good and he is just. Let me ask you this question then. Do you see authority as not just good, but right? Do you look at authority with skepticism in your life? Is there kind of an unhealthy suspicion that maybe you've even allowed to shape how you look at the Bible, how you look at God's authority because of what's swirling around us? I've probably spent too much time on that, but guess what? I'll just go a little bit further. Parents, this is incredibly important for your relationship with your kids. We need to instill in our children 
a healthy respect for authority in their lives. The reason you need to teach your children to obey you moms and dads. The reason you need to set boundaries with your teenagers' parents is because you're not just trying to protect them from things, although you are. You're also trying to instill in their hearts that authority is good. Because how you shape their view of authority as moms and dads, listen to me carefully, parents, will directly impact how they view their heavenly father. If you abuse your authority, if you're hollering and screaming at them all the time, that's how they're going to see their heavenly father. If you're asleep at the wheel and passive and just letting your kids do whatever you want, they will view God in the same way. We have a responsibility because of the goodness and the rightness of authority to shape that in our children. Number two, we also see in this passage not just the necessity of God's word, we see the response to God's word. Look in your Bibles at verse 8. Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month during the seventh year of the king. He began the journey from Babylon on the first day of the first month and arrived in Jerusalem on the first day of the fifth month since the gracious hand of God was on him. Now Ezra had determined in his heart to study the law of the Lord, to obey it, and to teach its statutes and ordinances in Israel. There are three uh, methods or steps to reading your Bible, to responding to the word that Ezra models for us that I want you to see here. The first thing I want you to see in this passage is that Ezra modeled a kind of reading of the Bible that was focused on first knowing God. Notice in your Bibles that Ezra first models for us a way of responding to the scriptures where we first are seeking to know God. Look in your Bibles again at verse 10. Now Ezra had determined in his heart to study the law of the Lord. That word study means to intently pay attention to or give careful attention to something. He desired to know the truth of the scriptures. It's important to remember that your Bible that you hold on your device or in your lap is not just a mere collection of people's experiences with God. This word that you hold in your lap is the very words God intended for you to have. God worked through Ezra, he worked through Jeremiah, he worked through John in such a way that they wrote what they wrote. Their writing style, their distinctive kind of background was in the writing of these books, but God worked through them in such a way that what we have is exactly, exactly what he intended. So if I put a a trombone, a trumpet, and a tuba on the stage, and I played each one of them in turn, they would sound different, but I would still be the one playing those instruments, right? In the same way, God worked through John, he worked through Ezra, worked through Jeremiah, so that they were still themselves. Remember that they did not go into a trance, and six hours later, there was the book of Jeremiah. No, they wrote what they wrote, but God was working through them, moving through them, so that what we have is exactly what he intended. Here's why I make that point. The goal of reading your Bible should not be to figure out how it makes you feel, The goal of reading the Bible is trying to figure out what God is saying through each of these authors. If you send me an email, do you want me to know and to figure out how I feel about it? Or do you want me to first try to figure out what you were saying to me? 
Now, I know that sounds a little ridiculous, but let me tell you why I'm emphasizing that. And parents, listen carefully. Your children, my children, your children are growing up in a society that's telling them that what's most important is how they feel about what they hear. If you don't believe me, look at President Trump's Twitter feed. Now, I'll be the first to tell you, I don't agree with everything our president says on Twitter or different places in our society. But can I tell you what at points I do see happening in our culture? Many of the things he's saying are totally getting neglected because people are so angered at the very sight of him. So just a few weeks ago, he gave this beautiful speech at the UN about the sanctity of life, about how every child is precious and special, that, that children are a gift from God. And my mouth fell to the floor and I was amazed and thankful that we have a president that would actually say that. Praise God that somebody would stand up and say that. But do you know what's happened in our culture? No one's interacting with the substance of what he's saying. All people are doing is saying, I feel threatened by you. I feel angered by you. So I'm not gonna listen to what you say because of how you've made me feel. Listen to me. We have got to make sure that when we're reading the Bible, the first thing we're trying to do, what Ezra models for us, is we're trying to understand what this actually says, not first and foremost how we feel. Second thing that you see in this passage is not only a desire to know God through studying it, secondly, notice that Ezra models loving God. Loving God. Look at your Bibles again in verse 8. Excuse me, verse 10. Now Ezra had determined in his heart to study the law of the Lord. This is maybe the most important step in this kind of series because it's the most overlooked, I think, in most of our churches, especially conservative evangelical churches. What Ezra is modeling is that he didn't just read the word and kind of accumulate this cold set of facts and knowledge. Every single thing God showed Ezra became a platform from which he worshiped and praised God. He loved God because of what God revealed to him. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. Just yesterday in 2 Kings 5, if you're reading through the Bible with us, we read about the story of a guy named Naaman. Naaman was a general of uh, opposing force to the nation of Israel, and uh, he developed leprosy. And he found out through a series of events that there was a prophet in Israel who could heal him. So he shows up, he comes to the prophet Elisha. Through a servant, the prophet Elisha tells him, go bathe in the Jordan River seven times and you'll be healed. Naaman's first response was, no way. I'm not doing that. I'm not going to that stinky, smelly river. We got better rivers back where I'm from. His servants prevail upon him to at least consider it. He goes, he washes seven times. And sure enough, on the seventh time, what happens? He's healed from head to toe. The Bible says that Naaman goes on to declare his worship of the true God, the Lord, Yahweh alone. So what are we to take away from that? What do we learn about God from that passage? Well, one of the things we learn is that God desires humility, right? It wasn't that something magical happened to the water between the sixth and the seventh washing is that God was 
humbling Naaman to say, you're going to go all the way in on this. Seven's a number of completion. I want you to totally go all out and submit yourself. But, but Naaman's story also reveals that we are called to worship God and God alone. The takeaway that is revealed is that he doesn't continue to worship all the other gods in his life. He comes out of the water, not only healed physically, he comes out of the water healed spiritually in his heart. I'm going to worship the Lord alone. So what am I doing? When I'm spending time in the Word in the morning reading this, what I'm doing is I'm saying, God, thank you for being a God who is not just holy and perfect, but worthy of my worship alone. Loving God means I stop, I meditate on what God is showing me, and I praise Him for that. God, thank you for being a God who's so worthy of my worship. I don't have to run around trying to find other things to fill my life. You're enough. You're enough for me. When we're reading the Bible, yes, we start first with what does this mean? What does this say? But we should always move to a worship and a stirring of our affections. Third and finally, we see in this passage that not only should we know God and love God through this text, we also see that we're called to obey God. Look at what he says in verse 10. Obey God. Now, Ezra had determined in his heart to study the law of the Lord. Notice this phrase, to obey it and teach it statutes and ordinances in Israel. Obedience means to do it. The word of God is not a suggestion. It's not just something we should consider sometime later. It's a command. It's what happens when you go to the doctor, right? If you're sick and you go to the doctor, you pretty much assume that the doctor is going to tell you something you need to do. Whether that's medicine you need to take or liquid you need to ingest or more sleep you need to get. There's going to be some kind of prescription. If you're sick and you go to the doctor, you come into that office going, I'm going to need to do something differently when I walk out. Let me try to connect it this way. We are spiritually sick people. When we come to the Bible, we should always assume God is going to show us something we need to do differently. In the same way that I'd walk out of that doctor's office with a prescription in my hand on my way to the pharmacy, when I come to the Word, I should always ask this question, Lord, what are you asking me to do differently in light of what I've read today? God, what are you asking me to do differently in light of what you've shown me in your word? One of the ways that that Ezra is going to model this for us is he doesn't just obey it. One of the ways he obeys it in his life is he passes it on. He teaches it to others. One of the great opportunities of reading your Bible every day and maybe even slowing down to write down what God's teaching you is it gives you a platform from which to encourage others. Parents and especially dads in the room, one of the reasons I would encourage you to spend time in the Word every day and to write down what God is teaching you is that when you sit at the dinner table with your kids and your wife, when you sit at that breakfast table, you have something to tell them about what God is teaching you in your life. If you want to see your kids' faith come to life, show them a real and living and active faith in your life as a parent. Knowing, loving, and obeying God is how we do that. What this means when you put all this together is that you and I must approach the Bible, not in some cold, disconnected way. We must approach the Bible as if it's living and active 
because it is. Hebrews 4 tells us that the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. What that means is it's the difference, I think, between dissecting an animal in your biology class and studying an animal in the wild. How many of you have ever dissected a pig or a frog or a sheep's eye? My wife did a sheep's eye. Okay, so you know what I'm talking about, right? You've got that, you've got that animal on the table. You've got it laid open there before you. It's dead. It's smelly. It's gross. You've probably got some gloves on and, and some goggles, and you've got some kind of instruments that you're looking at with it. And there's just kind of cold kind of detachedness with which you look at that thing, right? I remember staring at that frog in eighth grade science and thinking, what in the world have I gotten myself into, right? Maybe you've been there. But if you watch somebody study an animal that's alive in the wild, it's a very different kind of experience. I grew up watching the crocodile hunter, Steve Irwin. Anybody ever heard of the crocodile hunter? Okay, if you've ever watched that guy, and, and tragically he died actually doing what he loved to do, which was studying animals, there was nothing still or cold or detached about that. He was wrestling around with crocodiles this morning. I watched a clip of him again just to make sure I remembered right. He had the most poisonous snake in the world by the tail. Dude was straight up nuts, right? I mean, he's insane. <laughs> Crazy. He also wore those really short shorts. I could never <laughs> figure that out. I think it's an Australian thing. But the, but the point is, if you watch him in those videos and you go back to those clips, he's active. He's always moving. He's so excited about what he's looking at, Right? Just his excitement about these animals just kind of came through and, and you got excited too. When we come to the word, it's like we're studying something in the wild, not like you're dissecting something coldly in a biology class. What does that mean? That means when I come to the word of God, I come with everything that I am. My struggles, my fears, my concerns, I'm laying myself bare and open before, before the Lord to say, God, please speak to me. If you come to the word of God with the expectation like it's dead, like it's cold, like it's just another book, like it's just something you kind of have to get through, it's gonna shape how you respond to the word. But if you come to the word like it's alive, like it's something you're studying in the wild, it will change how you read your Bible. Do you come to your Bible like it's dead or do you come to your Bible like it's alive? Thirdly and finally, and I got a hustle. We also seen this passage, a progression of God's word. Well, this will be done. We've seen the necessity of God's word. We've seen Ezra's response to God's word, but now we're gonna look at a progression. In chapter 7, 11, 7, 11, there you go, through all the way to the end of chapter 7, verse 26, there's a letter that the king gives to Ezra. And in this letter, God, the king tells him, you need all the provisions. I'll provide all the money you need for this return to Jerusalem. I'm gonna give you animals. I'm even gonna tell my officials not to tax you once you return. And no, oh, by the way, Ezra, I'm gonna give you authority. You have been given authority to organize the people when you get back. So as Ezra's getting ready to go back to Jerusalem to teach people the word, he's given all this authority and power. Look in chapter 7, verse 27, how Ezra interprets this. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of our fathers, who has put it into the king's mind to glorify the house of the Lord in Jerusalem, 
and who has shown favor to me before the king, his counselors, and all his powerful officers. So I took courage because I was strengthened by the hand of the Lord my God, and I gathered Israelite leaders to return with me. First thing you see here is that God empowers his word. God empowers his word to return because Ezra's not just walking back to Jerusalem with his Bible in hand, hopeful that the people will listen to him. God has so worked in the king's life that Ezra's coming back fully provided Fully, with full provisions, but also with authority to instruct the people, to organize the people, if necessary, to correct the people. And that's critically important because next week we're going to see that Ezra's going to confront some problems and he's going to need authority. But it doesn't stop there because while Ezra is given this great authority, he's also now going to make the journey. The journey from Babylon where he was to Jerusalem was over a thousand miles, thousand mile journey. And it was not a safe journey. It was incredibly treacherous, incredibly dangerous. There were bandits and robbers all throughout this period, this area that basically were moving around unchecked. But Ezra had a problem. Look in your Bibles at chapter eight. Look at chapter eight, verse 21. He's getting ready to go. He's getting ready to return. And what happens? He says, I proclaimed a fast by the river Ahava so that we might humble ourselves before our God and ask him for a safe journey for us, our dependents and all our possessions. I did this because I was ashamed to ask the king for infantry and cavalry to protect us from enemies during the journey. Since we had told him, the hand of our God is gracious to all who seek him, but his fierce anger is against all who abandon him. So we fasted and pleaded with our God about this, and he was receptive to our prayer. Now, don't miss this. Ezra is an incredible danger because he's about to make a thousand-mile journey without troops and cavalry because he had told the king how great his God was. Ezra had felt that it would be inconsistent. It would be totally wrong for him to say that God is great and God is good and God is powerful, but then to come back to the king and ask for troops. So he doesn't do that. Can I just make a quick observation? Oftentimes following the Lord will not lead you away from danger. Oftentimes following the Lord will lead you right to danger. Ezra's response is not to ask for troops and cavalry. It was to say, God, we need you. And so they set out. They set out in this long journey and look at what happens in verse 31 and where this will be done. We set out from the river Ahava on the 12th day of the first month to go to Jerusalem. We were strengthened by our God and he kept us from the grasp of the enemy and from ambush along the way. So we arrived at Jerusalem and rested there for three days. On the fourth day, the silver, the gold and the articles were weighed out in the house of our God in the care of the priest. Eleazar, son of Phinehas was with him. The Levites, Josabat, son of Jeshua, and Nodadib, of son of Binuai, were also with them. Everything was verified by number and weight, and the total weight was recorded at that time. Verse 35, the exiles who had returned from the captivity offered burnt offerings to the God of Israel, 12 bulls for all Israel, 96 rams and 77 lambs, along with 12 male goats as a sin offering. All this was a burnt offering to the Lord. They also delivered the king's edict to the royal satraps and governors of the region west of the Euphrates so that they would support the people and the house of God. What happens? God 
safely returns his word. You not only see God's empowerment of his word, what you see is God's, secondly, protection of his word. God guides with his powerful hand Ezra and these people returning. Though they did not have military escort, God miraculously keeps them safe and brings them back. What does this tell us? Here's what it tells us, sweet people. God removes obstacles to advance his word in this world. God moves obstacles out of the way to get his word to his people. God has removed opposition and the king and all these things for one purpose, so that Ezra could come back and teach people God's word. The reason that matters for me and for you today is we must join God's work of advancing his world in this world. In a similar way, God is still removing obstacles and opposition to get his word into the hardest reached places in this world. One of the reasons I'm thrilled to see our partnership with Germany growing is that we are seeing God do the same thing in Ezra chapter 7 and 8 in places like Germany. You'll remember, some of you are new, you don't know, but we are seeing God move precious Muslim people out of war-torn countries, migrating all the way into Europe, and our missionaries and our leaders are there and seeing thousands, thousands of them come to know Jesus Christ as Savior. What is God doing there? God is removing opposition and obstacles that had kept those precious people from hearing the gospel. And now they're in a position where they can hear his word. Why is that important for me and for you? It's because we have got to join God in where he's moving in his word in this world. What Ezra chapter 7 and 8 have shown us is that God's word is essential for his restoring grace in this world. It's a necessity that we need to understand that authority is good. There's a particular response we need to have to God's word, that it's alive, that it's not dead. But thirdly and finally, we also need to recognize we need to join God's work of getting his word to the world. Would you pray with me, please? Father, in Jesus' name, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful that it's alive, that it's active, that it's sharper than any two-edged sword.